We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, Luke. So special episode today. Who have we got here with us? Uh, we have Mr. Brett Warren joining us today. Brett, if you'd like to say hello. Yes, hello. Welcome, Brett. Now, Brett, you are you have your undergraduate your <laughs> I can't speak today. Your undergraduate degree is in criminal justice and anthropology from California State University. You had also received a master's of science in crime scene investigation at George Washington University in DC. This is where you studied for crime scene and evidence processing, as well as forensic pathology and oh, <laughs> I'm so medical legal death investigation. Thank you. I, I can't read today. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, this sounds like we're doing a true crime podcast today, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And I'm sure crimes will come up in this context. Oh, yeah, yeah. Historical crimes. Yeah. Yes, the best kind. Specifically, <laughs> the analysis of death scenes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so Historical right there, death like, scenes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's. So, but but specifically today we're talking about vampires. Am I right? That is correct. Yeah. Very cool. So vampire death scenes or death scenes that may suggest the presence of vampires. At least historically speaking, correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very cool. So let's get into it. Uh, Brett, what's your introduction to this topic? How'd you get interested in this? Well, this is a. <laughs> it's very controversial. Uh, it's very complicated because um, it's not just one thing. And I was talking to someone else about this before, and they were like, it'd be so easy if, if I could just say that I had some ancestor from this period and, and I want to do some research on them. And, and there we go. I fell into it. But it's not like that at all. There's a variety of things uh, throughout my life that kind of pointed me to this direction. <laughs> and uh, I, I should say that um, it mostly started while... I was teaching linguistics in China. I was there for like about five years. and That's um, cool. And in the bookstores over there, there's a very small section of English books. <laughs> and even though I you know, became proficient at the language, I still you know, wanted to read and consume uh, English literature. So I, you know, I said I, the only things that you could really read uh, in this very small section was the classics, uh, a lot of philosophy, um, but also Dracula and uh, and even uh, Dante's Inferno, you know, stuff like this. Okay. Now, what fast back, we did a, a bit of a breakdown on Dante's Inferno. And Dracula. Yeah, I, d- <laughs> I, didn't, and Dracula. I didn't hear, I didn't hear the, uh, the episode on Dante's Inferno, but I, I, did, <laughs> I did enjoy the, the one on Dracula. And that's kind of the way that that book is, you know, compiled. It's the way that it's written is very beautiful for the time. It's it's written as if it's a collection of all these different artifacts, like uh, newspaper clippings, correspondence, you know, letters from the different people involved, and the and the uh, entries of various journals and diaries. And the way it's put together, <laughs> it kind of makes you it gets you immersed in you know the environment from which the author created. Yeah, that epistolary style makes you feel like you're uh, looking over somebody's shoulder. Yeah, and um, and you kind of feel like you're an investigator yourself, like you're a scholar looking through all these, you know, all these documents. And uh, but 
you know, one of the things that's, especially in the study of anthropology, is a very interesting question is, where do these things come from? Like, <laughs> the word vampire, like, why do we have this thing? What, uh, how did the historical evolution of these topics evolve over time to what we see on TV? Whereas in the past, apparently what we're going to get into is actually destroyed bodies uh, that that were dead and deemed to be vampires. But, but where did it come from? Like, uh, these is like a lingering question in my mind when I come to certain things. And so uh, that's kind of what got me started on the historical path through philosophy and trying to uncover a certain historical phenomenon. But I should mention that uh, this led me to, as it led me to want to understand these topics, uh, to try to find the true original sources um, is really difficult if you're an English speaker because most of the history is untranslated. It's either in Latin or German or some other language, depending on the region that you're talking about. And so, uh, so I came across a book that was not translated into English yet. It's called The Tractate of the Chewing and Smacking of the Dead and Graves. <laughs> it's a very interesting title, isn't it? I love that. So is that the sound that you hear when you walk by a grave, chewing and smacking? Yes, and we'll get into that. Okay. We'll get into that, and uh, and that's how that started. But uh, and so I, I I came across this book, and I decided to translate it myself, and uh, and from then on, um, I just kept translating other books, <laughs> and so there's a series of uh, in the 1700s, there's a series of dissertations that occurred. It's it's a debate between academics, theologians, alchemists, uh, uh, physicians. And they all try to un understand this phenomenon that was being reported at the time. And so, uh, but I, I, the first book I translated was this book that I told you about in 2017. Um, and it just so happened <laughs> that uh, I have an interest in uh, the criminal forensic side, especially what we call the history of science. And when I got into my master's program, uh, I had a professor who was at the time the current chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland and uh, Dr. Victor Whedon. And he pulled me aside and we did a research project uh, that was kind of separate from my studies at the university, but I still got credit for it to study the history of the autopsy. And he's, and he came up with this idea and I was like, Hey, you know, I translated this other book and he's like, Whoa, that's a crazy title. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> But, but you can see that uh, even physicians today, they have a, a strong interest in understanding the practice. So, um, and that's kind of where we are today. Uh, I have, I come at these things with a, with a perspective of um, the forensic science perspective of crime scene investigator, death investigator, uh, and establishing how the principles that we use today have evolved over time to what they are now. So what are the languages that you know, Brett? It sounds like you know a few. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I do know Chinese, and then I studied uh, German. Specifically, uh, what's kind of interesting about these texts is that they are not modern German. So even knowing German, you still have to study the, what we call in linguistics the diachrony of the language, which is the, how the, the language evolved over time. Because there's so many words that changed uh, the spe spellings changed, uh, certain words lost meaning or changed meaning over time. 
And so uh, there's a linguistic game you have to play with some of these texts. But, but yeah, so there's the older German and then there's Latin as well. So yeah, there's a variety of, uh, of and to be a proper historian, I think, uh, and to uncover these these things, you have to be able to study those languages so you can get to the true source material. And that's sure. kind of where I come from. Yeah. Sure. So so it's a lot of it that what you're working with is then like an old German style text. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's 18th century for sure. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So tell us, take us, take us on this journey. What, what happens when you start these translations? <laughs> um, well, uh, the translations, if, uh, if I talk about the, the, the difficulty of it, <laughs> because um, I've consulted many, many people uh, on certain issues with these texts. Uh, the, the person who wrote that first book that I mentioned uh, Michael Raft, uh, he at a very early age studied the older languages. He was fluent in uh, in middle school. He was fluent in um, in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and uh, eventually he even learns French and translates uh, some French texts. So this guy was incredibly uh, uh, he was incredibly smart and uh, and not only fluent in these old languages but also um, very strong in the philosophy of science for the time. And, and so some of these words, uh, if I'm just going to talk about the translations themselves, um, it was very difficult because some of the words, even for a scholar of that time, he was being so interested in these older languages. Some of the words that he used were even archaic for his day. And so uh, to, to, to try to explain the, the level of work I had to put into this. Um, <laughs> if you, you have to like find really old dictionaries uh, for some of these words, uh, either from the 1700s, the 1600s, and even the 1800s. And if they're not in any of these dictionaries, then you have to try to find another text with a specific word to understand the context of the passage that's within it and try to make a best educated guess of what that word is. And so it, it took a lot of work for sure. <laughs> and what, why this text? What is, what is significant about the, the smacking and the, what is it? The groaning the, and smacking? The, the <laughs> chewing, chewing and smacking, and smacking yes. of the dead and graves. And okay. so, uh, and so what's interesting. Uh, so this, this text along with others um, is very important in the topic of historical vampirism. And, all the literature points to these texts, but the problem is, is that when you read even peer-reviewed literature, a lot of times they cite the text without actually contributing any actual knowledge that was delivered from the text themselves. And in fact, they, they cite second, third, fourth-hand sources. And so that's what I came across, and I really wanted to just translate these things and bring them to the world so that an English-speaking audience would be able to study these things for the first time. Very cool. So if we were to pick up your translation, what would we discover? Uh, well, you discover the history of where the word vampirism came from, the word okay. vampire. And yeah, uh, yeah. and so I, I can give you a quick introduction of that. Um, yeah, please do. That'd be great. What's, it, what's important, I should tackle this. Uh, what's important when you go back into the history, uh, the, uh, the, the principle of anthropology that I use is called cultural relativism which uh, essentially means that 
you go back to the history and study the culture from their perspective. And, uh, and you try to ignore everything that you know today, because there's a lot of changes that have occurred over time um, that gives you false assumptions of the stereotypes and archetypes that were de- developed from these old histories. And so, uh, and so to f- start off, I would think the, what most of the old philosophers used to do is study the etymology of the word itself before tackling it on. And so the, uh, the word vampire, uh, <laughs> what does it mean? Um, there's a variety of origins that uh, even at the time they were debating where the word vampire came from. Some were saying that it was from uh, Illyria, which is a region of Western Balkans between the 8th and 1st century BC. Uh, even there are letters that we'll get to in a moment that say that it was from Turkish origin, that at least the Turks used it. Uh, but there was another book that I translated uh, by Johann Christoph Herrenberg, and he had um, presumed that the word's etymology was derived from a compound word where you, you, you take two words with different meanings and put them together to describe a new thing. And that would be vam, which is to mean blood, and pir, which is to be eager for. But then even he... Even he uh, made a connection between where did Vom come from? And, uh, you know, this word was first used in Serbia, but uh, the word Vom is similar to the word Dom in Hebrew, which means aspiration or to take a breath. And so there's, there's all these connections in history that you can derive from these things. But, uh, but I would like to ask you guys, do you know, like, where why we use vampire in English today? Uh, I'd have to guess because we're lazy and like to steal other people's <laughs> words. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a that's a good assumption, but uh, but it's actually the reason why is because in 1732, a report of a case of vampirism had arrived into England from uh, Vienna. And it was published in a variety of English periodicals uh, and newspapers. Uh, among them was the Gentleman's Magazine. Another was the, uh, the Political State of Great Britain. And there's others. Uh, but it laid out a narrative of a case, Arnold Payole. And uh, Arnold Payole was this vampire. And it talks about uh, all the, the circumstances regarding the case. And... Uh, yeah, go ahead. When you say he was a vampire, what <laughs> expand on that a bit, Brett? How, how, in what way was he a vampire? Well, this um, well, this actually brings us because uh, you you did in your in the past last year, I believe, uh, uh, uh in an episode on vampirism. We did, right? yes, mm-hmm. yes, uh, and so Dracula, about Bram Stoker's inspirations. Correct, and so. Uh, and so, yeah, you touched on uh, Arnold Payole, and um, and we have to. Uh, uh, I, I should give you a, a, a preface here, uh, a little introduction to history, so we can understand the case. Mm-hmm. Um, Arnold Payole was what is known as a Hadouk, and he was residing in Serbia at the time. But when we say Serbia, uh, we really say Turkish Serbia. Um, 
Serbia at that moment uh, for centuries had been under a conflict among other Christian nations uh, of imperial takeover from the Ottomans. And the Ottomans had a, a variety of tactics they used to take over these Christian territories throughout the centuries. Among them was to uh, to kidnap, to, to, to go into the villages and kidnap children and and uh, and bring them back, raise them as Muslims, give them high positions of power, put them in these uh, in these positions of uh, authority in the military, and then go back and do the same thing. And then they also uh, they also brought high taxes. And so the Hadouks, uh I believe is a Turkish word origin, uh, which means like it's like a scoundrel, someone that is a thief. And it very much describes these brigands that were developed from the Christian regions along the borders of the Turkish Empire, um, who specifically uh, did everything that you see Robin Hood doing, right? They they would uh, they would live in the mountainous regions. When a Turkish caravan came by, they would ambush them and steal all their stuff, and then uh, get, take from the take from the empire and give to the the, the poor Christian uh, villagers. And so it's kind of a very interesting history. Well, Arnold Paol was a Hayduk, and he uh, he had a kind of skirmish in. The borders of Kosovo, uh, the modern-day Kosovo, mm-hmm. and and he claimed throughout his lifetime that after he was done with this, he went back and became a farmer. But he claimed throughout his lifetime that he was afflicted by a Turkish vampire, and that to rid himself of this curse, he uh, apparently killed him. Uh, it's not really elaborated, but he took the earth from the vampire's grave and ate it. And smeared himself with the vampire's blood. Nothing you'll see in Anne Rice, that's for sure. <laughs> but this actually, what's really interesting about this uh, this belief about using blood as a form of uh, a, a ritual to relieve oneself of a curse is actually nothing new. Um, uh, many uh, there's even a there's there's many works that talk about this dating back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, Specifically, there's also a pamphlet that came out in France that detailed a case in in, uh, Poland where they did a similar practice where to rid themselves of the dead from, uh, from harming them later on, they would take the blood from the corpse and then bake it into bread and eat it. It's kind of really strange, but uh, there are these practices all over Europe. And that would keep the dead person from coming back at you later. Yeah, well, or so they believed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it kind of it kind of uh, is a very interesting connection to Dracula because one of the ways to become a vampire is to drink their blood. So you see where the connections derive from. Well, if you had baked it, then you would have been fine. It's the... <laughs> You don't it's want food it safe blood at that point. Yes, that's the that's the idea, Luke. It's food safety is always first. Yeah, made sure my blood is temped at one sixty five when I took it out of the oven. So exactly. I think I'm okay. Yes, that's perfect. You're fine. Enjoy. Yeah, and so uh, well, that's what they believed anyway, and um, and so, but what happened was he died suddenly uh, from a fall of a hay wagon, 
broke his neck. And uh, I have an excerpt of the report that I'd like to read to you. Yeah, this is Arnold, right? This is Arnold Pagel. Okay, go ahead. Um, and this had uh, this had occurred five years before this report. So there's a there's a couple of incidents happening here. But uh, this first case of Arnold Pagel, um, and I'm going to read as follows: In the 20 to 30 days after his death, some people complained that they were being plagued by the imagined Arnold Pagel, as even four people had also been killed by him. In order to therefore cease this evil, they have on the advice of their headnack, which had previously taken place on such occasions. The headnack was a, a kind of governor. Um, they had unearthed Arnopil 40 days after his death and found that he was quite perfect and without decay. Fresh blood had flowed from his eyes, nostril, mouth, ears, while his shirt, the overdrapery, and the coffin had been completely bloody. The old nails had fallen off the hands and feet, along with the skin, and had grown fresh new ones. As they see from it that he is a real vampire, they have, according to their custom, struck a stake through the heart, in which he made a very loud, clearly heard groan, and let out a frequent flow of blood, whereupon they burnt the body to ashes on the same day, and had thrown them into the tomb. Therefore, people say that all those who were plagued and killed by vampires would also have to come become vampires themselves. So they executed the above four people in the same way. Living people. Well, no, they were all dead oh, because okay. he had killed four people. Oh, and I so see. these these four people, uh, in order to stop the plague of more people dying, they killed off all these other people as well. So they did a similar ritual with driving a stake through and then burning their remains as well. Exactly, yes. Excellent. And then so uh, this had happened, and then five years later, in 1731, uh, there was a new case, and uh, and all over again, uh, there was a new plague. People are dying, and and it was uh, decried by the by the residents of the village that that the um, that in order to stop this. The Imperials should come and assess the body and help them figure out what's going on. And so uh, the first person to arrive, uh, the first Imperial surgeon to arrive five years later of this new case that happened in 1731 in December was uh, a physician named Glasser. And uh, he conducted uh, some autopsies on a variety of corpses uh, that were exhumed. And, um, and he took it in count. And then a month later, uh, that report was sent to the the Imperials, uh, specifically the Council of War in Serbia. Um, you have to also, <laughs> I should also give another um, bit of information here. This is the kingdom, uh, this is the empire, uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire. So there's a bunch of kingdoms that are involved in this. And, uh, and the Council of War uh, sent... Two, uh, they sent some surgeons over there, three surgeons to be exact, and two commanding officers, uh, one of which was the commander of the Prince Alexandrian regiments. And they conducted another inquest of these new, uh, was 13 bodies that were exhumed um, in this new plague. And so I, I have uh, here a, another excerpt of the report that, uh, that I would like to share with you. Uh, so you can understand the types of things that these people were dealing with and 
what the report actually says about some of these people. Okay. Uh, the first, a woman named Stana, 20 years old, died two months ago after three days of illness since her delivery and testified before her death saying that she had been painted with the blood of a vampire and consequently her child who had died immediately after his birth and due to the assistance of poor burial had been consumed by the hounds and must become vampires too in the discovery of being quite perfect and without decay. When the body was opened, a quantity of fresh extravasated blood appeared in the chest cavity, the arteries, the veins, together with the ventricles of the heart, and were not, as usual, filled with coagulated blood. All the viscera, as the lungs, liver, heart, spleen, stomach, and intestines, were fresh and as healthy as a human being. The uterus was very large and externally inflamed because the afterbirth remained with it and was therefore completely rotten. The skin of the hands and feet together with the old nails had fallen away on its own. And on the contrary, in addition to the fresh and vivacious skin that showed, there were also completely new nails, although suffused with blood. Hmm. And so <laughs> what we see here is this is only one of the 13, but uh, you see here a variety of things. Uh, the main question at issue here was that these people, even though they were dead and they were buried for several weeks or even months, were still without uh, any form of bodily decay, as it appeared. They had uh, they had, were fresh with blood. Um, you know, like the other one, there was blood all over the coffin. Well, there's flesh blood oozing from these corpses, and so uh, and so and the appearance of fr new fresh skin and and nails falling off. And so you have all these crazy phenomena that's occurring um, among some of these uh, among some of these bodies. And here's here's another one. Uh, a woman named Melisa, who was 60 years old, who died after three months of illness and some 90 days ago. There was a lot of liquid blood in the breast. The other viscera, like the ones reported before, were in good condition. And at the time, uh, the surrounding Heyduk were very much astonished of the fatness and perfection of the body, unanimously saying that they had known the woman well from her youth and that she had looked very thin and parched during her life. By affirmation that she came to this fatness in the tomb was an astonishing sign. According to the testimony of the people, she is at the present time said to have made the origin of the vampires by eating the meat of a sheep that was killed by the previous vampires. And so uh, they believed that not only the dead could kill you, but if you were to eat the flesh of, a, of an animal that was killed by a vampire, they too must become vampires. So all that good vampire, vampire stuff, drinking livestock blood, that was happening too. <laughs> yeah, but well, I, I think what in this instance, uh, it was probably cooked meat that she ate. She, um, she cooked it, but would the vampires have just like killed the sheep for fun or are they trying to drink its blood? Well, that's the presumption, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but like I said, there's 13 of these, and uh, I'll read one more. Um, Stanica, a Hadouk's wife, 20 to 22 years old, died after three days of illness and was buried 18 days ago. In the dissection, I found that her face and neck were red and lively. 
We have already reported above that she had been strangled at midnight by the Hadouk's son, Melov, which was another uh, corpse that they dissected. Um, this had now been identified from having the right side under the ear blue with a spot of blood running down with one finger length. Upon the removal of the tomb, a quantity of fresh blood flowed from the nostrils. At the dissection, I found a rather balsamically fresh blood, not only in the chest cavity, but also in the heart chamber. All the entrails are in perfect, healthy, and good condition. The underskin of the whole body, together with the new nails on the hands and feet, were also completely fresh. But after the visitation, the heads of all the vampires were cast off, and together with the bodies completely burned. While the ashes were thrown into the water, however, the decayed bodies were returned to their former graves. Hmm. So I know we theorized a little bit, or at least we brought up some ideas when we were talking about vampires of how uh, medical folks have attempted to explain away some of these phenomena. But now you're a medical examiner, Brett. What do you say about these strange <laughs> well, autopsy reports? Well, I'm not a medical examiner, but I did study forensic pathology. Uh, oh, okay. uh, specifically, the, the investigative procedure that would help the medical examiner determine the cause and manner of death. So, so you're in the in the realm of forensics, anyhow. Yes, correct. Yeah. And uh, well, there's a lot of, lot of modern explanations for these things, um, and uh, there's there's a variety of things happening here. And uh, one thing is the the failure of the body to decompose. And well, there's a variety of factors that would cause a body to decay um, over a period of time, and whether it's uh, there's a variety of conditions involved, uh, whether it's the weather, uh, the humidity, the moisture around. Not many people know this, but there's typical, typically three forms of uh, bodily decay. There's the what everyone is familiar with, the skeletonization, which is the, the body completely decomposes and returns to the earth, and all that's remained is the skeleton. But there's two others. Uh, there's the... Uh, what's called the saponification, which is when a body is in an extreme amount of moisture and the fleshy materials kind of turn to soap. Uh, and then the third is uh, mummification. And this is a preservation of a natural preservation of the body, typically that occurs in arid environments, uh, in extreme like cold weather, or even, uh, or even in the desert uh, where there's Typically, what would cause a skeleton, a skeletonization, is um, the perfect conditions of weather, uh, dampness, moisture, and you know a variety of critters that can also uh, feed on the corpse. Um, and and there's also these things called post 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 mortem changes, uh, which are assessed by death investigators and pathologists to uh, help them determine the approximate time of death. Um, and there's a variety of things that occur after somebody dies, uh, the slippage of skin, the bloating um, of gases. Uh, and, and a lot of these signs uh, were obviously, very obviously misinterpreted at the time. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the importance of these texts here, uh, and what I have done is I have translated a bunch of these, a bunch of these volumes and dissertations together, which I call the the historic vampire debate, uh, 
<laughs> so that people can understand um, that after these cases occurred, uh, it was a controversy. This was a controversy for the age. This was 1732, um, and it it didn't end with <laughs> it did not end with the narratives of oh th- there's these reports, but there's also a backstory of of high-ranking officials sending letters uh, to academics trying to understand what is going on. And here I have another letter I want to I want to I have a letter that I want to share with you guys. Uh, it was written by Sigismund Alexander Fondrich of Kotwitz, who was the ensign to the Prince Alexandrian regiments. Um, who, after he re- obtained the report, uh, he sent this letter to a doctor in Germany. Okay. Uh, and so it's it's dated uh, from Belgrade, the twenty sixth of January, seventeen thirty two. High noble highly honored doctor. I take the liberty of communicating the same to a case, which, although is a long-standing one, is still especially true in our kingdom of Serbia, from which that report of the salaried commission of the laudable commander-in-chief is more often seen in this region. Such azer are called, in the Turkish tongue, vampires, or human suckers, whom are capable of ruining an entire village of men and cattle, of which Frequent complaints are daily heard in the local government, in addition to the village named in it, being Medvidia. We also had taken place in another called Kuklina, of which is also affirmed by the inhabitants of the town that two brothers who had been plagued by such a vampire during the night, they would therefore take turns lying awake to keep watch because it would open the door in the likeness of a dog, yell, but immediately run away again until one day they both fell asleep and at last one was bitten for in the moment it sucked upon a red spot under the right ear who therefore died from it three days later. And what is more abhorrent is that a Huduk who had been buried a day before he had come to his wife the following night and who was ordinarily attentive, who had been on the day thereafter implied the same to a local head nook with the mention that he did his business as well as he had done in his lifetime, except the seed that had been used was cold. She conceived of it, and after the usual term of 40 weeks, bore a child who had the complete proportion of a boy, yet not a single limb, but had been as pure piece of flesh that even after three days was collectively wrinkled as a sausage, because one makes an extraordinary miracle here, as if your particular opinion submits to me obediently, I ask whether such is the effect of something sympathetic, devilish, or an astral spirit, with which I hold in much respect. High noble, my most honorable lord, doctor. Uh, and that's the end of that. <laughs> that's pretty weird. So like an incubus situation there. Yes, and so you have a variety of situations happening, and like the guy said, uh, this wasn't a one-off occurrence. Like this was happening constantly. Um, a lot of people were complaining of of really crazy things, and uh, and so he sent this letter to a doctor uh, named Goetz uh, in Germany, who was uh, part of the Leopold. Carolina Academy of Natural Curiosity. <laughs> um, this was a society of doctors uh, 
whose members constantly exchanged letters on various phenomena, and uh, and then they published it in uh, a weekly periodical, and every year they published this periodical into a book. And so, uh, and so there's a variety of letters from this these all these doctors that uh, have um, that come at a point in trying to understand this situation. And in fact, uh, even the father of the first physician that I mentioned before, Dr. Glasser, had also written letters to, and, and he happened to be a member of the same society. And so, uh, and so it's a very interesting thing that we have here. Um, and there's a variety of phenomenon, like all throughout history of, of similar occurrences that they were trying to really understand. And that's what caused this debate that I talked about, where there's a plethora of all these people that were writing tracts and dissertations. And, uh, and so I, I endeavored to translate as much of these as possible and, and so that people can study these things for the first time. So these strange corpses are not sitting in a vacuum. They're sitting in this wide folk culture who's you know exchanging stories of men having sex with their wives after they die and sausage babies and... <laughs> that kind of thing. It's not an isolated event, these corpses. Right. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they would blame certain things. Um, you have to understand, uh, just like the old witchcraft trials, right, that there were these, there were lots of crazy, strange events that were occurring, uh, people dying, cattle dying, and they would blame it on witches. What we have here is some crazy things occurring as well. Um, it, it's you know, not likely to be what they're describing it to be, but uh, the phenomenon that is occurring, such as this baby that um, was born deformed, uh, probably could have been a real thing, but it it might have just been blamed on the instance that it was a vampire instead. And so, uh, and so you have all these phenomena that we try to understand, um, and then we come to the the chewing and smacking of the dead in graves. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and and as you elaborated on, uh, people would walk by what was called the God's Acre, which is the uh, the cemetery that was, was surrounding a church. And so uh, it wasn't uncommon for you know these churches to be in the center of the society. And so imagine yourself walking along the street, and you hear these weird sounds. Well. It's described, the sounds that they heard, were the feeding of smacking pigs or a strange knocking sound. Mm. And uh, they would, all throughout history, there's there's uh, narratives where they would go and exhume these bodies to figure out what was going on. In some cases, there was a noble who uh, was found after there was this sound that was heard from emanating from the grave, uh, they exhumed it. They opened the body, they, or they opened the the casket, and they found that uh, he was face down instead of when he was buried face up, which is where we get the modern term, you know, to turn in one's grave. It actually came from these cases. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Now, in events like this, and events where they had recognized, um, you know, where they had identified individuals as being vampiric, and they'd gone through and looked at the corpse and you had like the new layers of skin and the former fingernails have fallen were they ever exhumed a second time so that they could kind of uh kind of yes. reaffirm their findings yes well actually uh that case um of these 13 people that i was talking about before uh the first the first doctor was glasser which occurred mm -hmm. in 
December. But then in January, after the Council of War uh, decreed that it should be investigated again, they sent these other people in January uh, to do the same. And that's where this other, this report that I was reading from came from. But, uh, but there were more strange incidents that were happening because some of these bodies that were found were not just found to be turned over, uh, but some of them were found to have eaten uh, the flesh of their limbs. Of their own limbs. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of crazy to think about. And, and so they, they philosophize on like, what's going on? Well, at the time they believed uh, there were probably a couple of things going on there. Um, one explanation was that uh, it could be the spirit of the individual, uh, you know, um, having a kind of, maybe they're in purgatory or something like this. Uh, and another one could be uh, a, a, a devilish spirit or a demon that was using the body as a, a kind of devilish game that they were playing. Um, oftentimes that these people uh, were believed to have practiced magic. And so the magic is persist, persisting after death. And, and that's kind of uh, the context from the people at the time. Uh, we wouldn't ascribe that, that to that today, but uh, very simply, I mean, and, and some of these texts even elaborate that some of these cases uh, could have occurred from just somebody being buried alive. Um, and imagine, you'd have to imagine yourself if you were buried alive. It's a very gruesome thought, but what would you do? You know, you're, you're completely surrounded. <laughs> There's no escape. Um, it's certain that uh, people would try to kill themselves in some way. Unless and, you're Uma Thurman, then you just slowly work your way out of the coffin, as I recall. Yes. Yeah, develop yeah, some... Very strong punches, but from small distances <laughs> yes. to break through the wood. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, um, that wasn't realistic <laughs> for <No>. some people. <laughs> uh, but uh, but this is a very interesting thing, because this isn't just among the regions of the Germans or the Serbians, but this is also something that happened among the Jews and also uh, the Muslims as well. Uh, for example, uh, in one of my texts, uh, it, it came across that the Jews had at one point, uh, or a certain, a certain sect of Jews, uh, would cut the linen, the corners of the linen from the that are nearest to the mouth, and they would do everything they could to prevent the body from eating the uh, the clothing around the neck. And uh, because it was also found, uh, there were many cases throughout history, uh, chronicles, uh, where people were discovered after they were exhumed to have swollen, uh, to have swallowed and eaten the linen from not only the casket, but also their own clothing. And there was one case in particular where there was a, a couple that was buried together who um, who were later exhumed. Uh, and it was discovered that the man had eaten the veil of the female, of his wife, because they were buried together. Wow. At least he extended the courtesy to eat the veil and not her limbs. <laughs> yes, but uh, but if we were to explain that today, I mean, um, I mean, the signs of death were not so prevalent as they are now. Especially, uh, you have to understand, like maybe a comatose patient, and even today, the comatose patient who is uh, not—they're um, not conscious—but they will have a a tendency 
to eat and swallow what's ever in their mouth. And so there's this, uh, there's this, you know, mechanism that the body does that even when you're sleeping, if something were to crawl in there, you'd probably eat it. Um, and there, <laughs> when I was growing up, I heard this, uh, this theory, it was like an urban legend that, uh, people typically eat like, you know, seven spiders in their lifetime, <laughs> something like this, <laughs> um, <laughs> in their sleep. And, you know, that's a very, you know, that's how you have to look at these cases. You have to look at it from, um, if you, you have to understand the perspective of the time, but when you try to understand the phenomena that's occurring, you have to understand it through the lens of the science. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of like how I've been looking at these cases and kind of what led me to want to translate these things is to understand these histories more thoroughly. So the blood and this living blood that's still, uh, in these vampiric corpses and the nails, uh, do you chalk that up to just, uh, the state of decomposition or the, the way decomposition is taking place in that environment? Yeah. In fact, uh, in fact, the, the slippage of skin is very common. In fact, uh, I, I don't want to get too much into the, the forensic methods, but, um, but the, the use of the skin, uh, one specific method that we use is called the degloving technique, uh, which, in which you, you take the skin of a, a hand that's peeling off and you use, you use it as your own glove, basically, to take fingerprints. It's one of the methods that are used to identify bodies. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> they don't put so that my, on CSI. <laughs> no, yeah. my wife is a paramedic. Um, <laughs> and so I'm familiar with degloving, but I didn't realize it could be used in, for lack of better words, such a creative uh, <laughs> method for it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's a variety of things that <laughs> uh, that are not going to be no, shown on TV, but of course, but, uh, but this is a very common thing that, and especially, uh, as you had mentioned in your prior episode on this, um, there's the, the, the very top layer of skin is very commonly peeled off because of multiple layers in skin. Mm -hmm. And that top layer is basically dead skin cells. The, the, the life of a skin cell is about 24 hours. And so after it dies, it will revert and go and go into a hardened state and go into the top layer to provide protection for the rest of the organs. And so um, that there would be fresh skin underneath or appearing to be so is very common. And uh, as you saw with that other case of the woman who was 60, uh, uh, she was very thin, but then uh, it looked as if she was fattened with the blood that she was drinking from her victims. It was simply, uh, we can look at that as just the... uh, the gaseous state of bloating uh, of various forms of gases will occur. It will cause the body to expand and they'll look uh, bigger than they are and maybe ca- even cause the skin to stretch a little bit. Um, some of the other phenomena that had occurred, such as the profuse bleeding that was coming out of the mouths and nose and of the, of the decedents, uh, this is described simply as it wasn't blood at all. <laughs> In fact, uh, <laughs> during the during the de- uh, stage of decomposition, uh, there's a natural purging of fluid from the body, and this fluid uh, oftentimes will come from the the stomach uh, in the form of a bile that will appear red but is not actually blood. And so, 
uh, when people are, um, you know, piercing these things with stakes, these these corpses with stakes and blood is spilling out everywhere. Well, it's not it's not really blood per se. Uh, and there are certain instances where blood can coagulate and then uh, become like more harder and then you know liquefy over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but there's there's a let's just say there's a series of natural phenomena that are occurring that are being misinterpreted here. Um, and that's kind of, and that's kind of what needs to be understood. It's interesting. Yeah. And you had mentioned when you're looking at this from an anthropological perspective, um, that you need to put yourself in the mindset of someone who would have been there at the time, ignoring the knowledge that you would have now, because that kind of, it changes your perspective. So thinking about it in that context or thinking about the perspective of the, <laughs> of the bodies that are being exhumed and seeing them and seeing what's happening. I can, I can only imagine the confusion that they must've experienced. Yeah. And imagine also um, the type of plague that was happening. People were dying. You, these, uh, when you look at yourself from that perspective, from the perspective of the person at the time, these are villages with not very many people. Maybe the the surrounding villages might have like a thousand people or so. I mean, my high school was two thousand people, um, so that's not a lot of people. <laughs> and everybody will know what's going on. And if if one person died in my high school from some reason for some reason, everybody knew about it. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, and so you look at it from that perspective, but also look at it that people are many people are dying sudden deaths. Uh, is uh, maybe within 30 days, sometimes it's described even three days. Um, and, and on their deathbed, they're saying that they're, they're having these hallucinations. These apparitions are coming to them in the form of someone that had died before. And so this, uh, can also, a lot of people experience these things today. I mean, of all the people that, uh, claim to be abducted by aliens, even, and people that, uh, claim to be, you know, uh, to have some spirit press them on their chest. Well, this is very much likened to uh, another phenomenon that we call in modern times uh, sleep paralysis. Sure. And I don't know if any of you have heard, have experienced it. Have any of you? Mm, yes, yes, I have a few times, but not. I don't. Thankfully, um, not personally. I don't have the demonic associations with it, but yeah. Well, something that I have experienced myself. Um, and it's very scary. You can't move. You're you're stuck, and you you it's you have the perception at least that you are aware of your surroundings. Um, but I've had, uh, but you, you might even be in this dream state. The, the the difference between what's called the the REM or the REM state of of dreaming, uh, the rapid eye movement, in which uh, you're in this state where you're dreaming, but you're still aware that you're awake, and you might still have these these dreamlike hallucinations occurring around you. And what's kind of crazy about the situation is that some people experience things and other people will never experience in their entire life. And so trying to trying to illustrate and, and convey the, what your own experiences are, if you had experience at all, uh, to someone that has not, it, it creates doubts, you know, about what people really experience. Um, but but the fact that people do complain of these things in the modern day can kind of give you an understanding of, oh, well, someone back then, uh, they didn't have lights. <laughs> you had to light a candle, right? 
And so, uh, and so if, if you wanted to turn the light on, cause you're experiencing something or whatever, um, many people, uh, if they experience a nightmare, they, they go and turn on the light really quick and, you know, they, they assess what's going on. But, uh, back then they didn't have that luxury. <laughs> and so it's very easy to understand, uh, the perspective of those people at the time, for sure. That's interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought about people reporting, seeing the dead, uh, at or near death or even in sleep, but, uh, I mean, we, we've talked about that multiple times. When you think about near-death experiences, it's a very common part of the NDE. Uh, and Frederick Myers talked about uh, people seeing loved ones who were dying at a distance. Uh, he didn't have an explanation for it. He thought it was some kind of psychic phenomena. But if you take that strangeness of that common occurrence and slap it down in a vampiric belief culture, that easily is then pushed onto vampires. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah. And... Uh... And I have some other things I want to talk about, especially the uh, when I relayed before the the different states of decay. Well, there's something called the incorruptibility, uh, and it was perceived, uh, which essentially what I said the 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 natural mummification of the dead. Um, it was perceived among saints as a sign of sainthood. Um, so priests. Uh, and, and if you go to Europe, there's a lot of churches throughout Europe in the modern day that have uh, decedent bodies that are preserved, at least what they believe to be preserved, um, without the stain of incorruptibility that they revere as saints and they worship and they, they use their possessions and even body parts as relics to in uh, ritualistic blessing uh, rituals and and so it's it's very interesting that they they have this, but they also in the past, especially this is true among the Greeks, that uh, before when you go into the history and and trying to understand where these different things come from, well, it's a combination of of different cultures um, that live really <laughs> relatively close to each other, and so the Greeks, uh, just like the the saints, were people who had a preservation of their body were perceived as a saint. Those people that were excommunicated from the church, they wouldn't have a Christian burial and uh, they were perceived to be, you know, to go to hell. And so when they were buried and something happened and it caused their body to be exhumed and it so happened that their body did not decay, well, they were perceived as a, uh, well, in some cultures, vampires, but specifically the, the Greeks had this other word called paracula, which, uh, which the, the rough translation is a, a ravaging wolf. And so they ha there are narratives in uh, old Greek literature, especially uh, there was a man named Turnfort who uh, was under a decree from some uh, the king of France, um, I believe in the 1500s, who did a voyage all over Europe and one of the places he went to was Greece and he talked about this uh, in a letter. And he wrote that uh, these people who were excommunicated, if uh, they were believed that they would have some type of demonic connection, the since the body didn't, uh, didn't decay, they were called in the Greek uh, tongue, uh, the, the wor specific word would be drum, uh, because the skin would be hardened like a drum. And 
and they would uh they would believe that these people would run around after death um howling like wolves in the street <laughs> knocking on the doors of people and if they were to call somebody's name uh 3 days later that person would die and so they have uh all of these phenomena and the, the sim the similar story the similar stories occur in other regions in Poland in Germany in uh in was Moravia uh in Bohemia uh, modern day Czechoslovakia so uh or the Czech Republic and so uh, all of these cultures have their own versions of things but they are all very much connected they all derive from a similar origin you know and it's a very interesting that this occurs so so the greek origin is is where you would start things um well yeah at least in the 1500s uh, but there's yeah but there's cases all over uh and if you were to go into the archives of various regions or even um there are these tombs uh these tomes that uh, they're called chronicles that where scholars would write everything that happened that year. And uh, some of these events that would occur would be very similar to what I just described. Um, and so uh, you have these narratives all over, all over Europe. Um, but, but yes, uh, there are origins and even beliefs of where these things might've, these these belief systems might've been derived from. And that's kind of the question in some of these texts that I translated is trying to figure out where did it come from? Why is it a thing? What is the implications of it from a Christian perspective? Cause there were Christians at the time. These were, these were Christian societies. So they're trying to understand, is this a miracle? If it's not a miracle, is it the devil? If it's not the devil, is it a natural phenomenon? And so even at, at the time they, they tried to use, uh, what is called uh, qualitatis occultas, which is, you know, the occult qualities of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the concept of the occult has changed and morphed. And there's, there, in different cultures, the occult means something different. But when I'm coming from this specific period and these specific people, I'm simply talking about the occult properties of nature as the Latin translation would be the hidden qualities of nature and trying to understand those hidden qualities. And that is the first principle of our modern science, trying to philosophize upon these crazy phenomena that occur in nature and trying to understand it without all the tools that we currently have in our modern day society. But at the time, um, they would try to philosophize and think about what was actually occurring. And in fact, uh, Newton's laws of physics, the, the, the very laws are in a book that he wrote. Uh, it's called the, uh, the Natural Philosophy of Mathematics, I believe is the English title. And so you have this natural philosophy. And this is why even today, people who obtain doctorates, they typically get a PhD, a doctor of philosophy <laughs> in a specific, you know, in a specific field. And so, uh, and so, yeah, coming to the the modern day perspective of how these things occur, I mean, uh, they at the time were also trying to figure it out. So it's, it's a very interesting thing and very exciting to me. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, any consensus on on how they concluded these debates? Well, uh, yeah, um, it's different people that tackled these things. Uh, 
come from different perspectives. Like the alchemist, um, there was the alchemical perspective, which uh, followed the principles of Paracelsus, which believed that there were three parts of man and that uh, there would be a body and two spiritual parts, a, a spirit and a soul, and that the, the, the soul would go to God and the spirit would remain and become part of the what was called known as a, the world spirit from which all spirits are uh, entangled and can possibly even interact with uh, the corporal realm. But even this was disputed um, among others uh, who believed that there were only two parts of man, which was a very important debate at the time. Um, But then you have the physicians also uh, who um, also believed that there could be no more than two parts. And and in fact, uh, many of these things could be explained through natural means. And then you have uh, some other Christians that believe that uh, there could be a demonic force. And so uh, that's kind of the, this is the importance of the debate is that what we have today, the parallels of, of arguments that we have in politics and various things in society, well, they had at the time. <laughs> and so me translating all these different tracts and books uh, very clearly shows a debate of the day about these crazy phenomena that occurred in history and trying to understand it from their perspective, their own relative perspectives. And not many people really consider this, but if somebody were to, there would be some type of controversy at the time. Well, the only way to really talk about it is through publication. And so they'd write out something like a book or a pamphlet, maybe 20 pages or so, it's very short. And they'd write out their arguments about it and then they get it printed from a printing press, put it in a bookstore and someone else would read it. And if they wanted to refute it, well, they would have to write out their own and then <laughs> get it printed in a, and put it in the same bookstore. And so you see this happening in real time. And I've mentioned this before. It's likened to a uh, the, the earliest form of a Twitter debate. <laughs> but the only people that are uh, the only people that are involved are the the highest learned in society, and through this paper publication, um, and and you very clearly see that people are constantly attacking each other or praising each other and even plagiarizing each other <laughs> um, to try to put their own arguments. And so uh, that was the whole goal of this project: is to to uh, to to bring not only that the narratives and the the history of the science, but also uh, the various perspectives of the day and to bring it to people of the modern day so that they can study it for the first time in English. Yeah. Any last questions, Luke? I, <laughs> I'm just still thinking about this. The, when you were mentioning the Greeks and <laughs> if <laughs> I just, it's so amusing to me that if they exhumed your body and they found that you were perfectly preserved, um, and you were of the faith that you would be, it could be an identifier of sainthood. Whereas if, you know, you hadn't been baptized or if you weren't a Christian at that time, it, it instantly becomes a demonic issue. And I just, I find that I love that. I Maybe love isn't the right term for it, but I, I find it very wild to see how, because of people being preserved, preserved for the same means but our interpretations of it just change so wildly 
Well, there's also an explanation for this. Uh, the um, There's a couple of scriptures that talk about this very thing. And in fact, uh, in the Old Testament, there was a man who was, uh, who was uh, I don't have the exact scripture in front of me, but um, paraphrasing, uh, there was a, a man who was lowered to a tomb and his his body had touched the bones of a uh, of a prophet, and that caused him to awaken and suddenly become alive. And then there's another uh, verse where uh, I believe it's in Psalms, um, where he says that even uh, even the stain or the mark of corruption will not touch me because of the love of God or something to this effect. And so uh, you can understand why the Catholics believed that mm-hmm. this would be a sign of sainthood. But even importantly, if you go back into the, the early witchcraft trials um, and the people that try to explain these things, they very much believed that Satan was nothing more than a mockery of what God has done. And so he would perform or attempt to perform the same miracles that God did, but his, in his own way. And so you can understand the theology of that statement, that if God would have a certain miracle or a certain thing that would occur, um, then Satan would also try to uh, make a mockery of that and as a disdain to the human race and to the, the word of God. Yeah, it's, it's a way of preserving certainty. There's yeah. good and there's bad. And it's that gray area that we're not comfortable with. So we banish that gray area from from the debate and, and you land on one side or the other. That's fascinating, though. It's a, it's a fascinating example of, of that uh, that kind of uh, behavior. Yeah, Vampires yeah. get into it, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what, what's really cool about this is that, uh, you know, the witchcraft trials are so <laughs> are so much written about. There's so many volumes about their witchcraft trials, um, but people don't really understand that there were trials <laughs> for these vampire instances as well. Like they had procedures um, to go and exhume bodies and assess signs of life upon upon the bodies, and then to destroy the body to end a plague. And typically, that's another thing too, is that these things typically pl- occurred. In plague time, and so, uh, and so, you know, uh, <laughs> to bring home the point here that uh, some of the phenomena that occurred could have just been symptoms of the plague, um, such as the uh, the hallucinations and whatnot. So, um, yeah, all of these things. It's it's kind of interesting to bring all these histories together and and to look at it from uh, a perspective from 2020 vision of hindsight <laughs> and you go back into these histories and you're able to uh, assess what was going on at the time from the minds of the time. Yeah. You get in that time machine and and you got to be born in a village somewhere in the 15th, 16th century. I would rather be in the vampire village because uh, that witch village, they might get you while you're alive, but that vampire village, I will have at least lived out my life and they will be <laughs> mutilating my corpse but what do I care? I'm already on to the next thing. Oof. Well, I would say that for them, it was a very big deal because uh, they wanted to preserve their corpse for the resurrection. Right, these that's were, true. Remember, these were Christian, these were Christian villages. Yes. So yeah, anyway. Yeah. I guess that's my inner Hindu. Uh, so, uh, Brett, tell us, uh, what, where can we find more about your work? Yeah, so uh, I... <laughs> 
I attempted to uh, publish these on my own, um, and I started a Kickstarter to do that. And so if anybody wants to buy these books, I, I created a Kickstarter. Go to Kickstarter, search The Historic Vampire Debate. It'll be there. And, uh, and what I did was very interesting here. Um, not only did I translate all these books, there's four volumes total, uh, but, but I also included um, maps of the various regions of the time and also facsimiles of the documents themselves um, of these specific reports. And so uh, you get to hold you know, an archive of this history in your own hands as you read these old texts. So it's very exciting for me specifically to ha- to give these to people and let them read it. What a lovely holiday gift. Uh, Luke, we can put that link up with the episode, yeah? Yes, we certainly can. So just check out our episode description or wherever we post about our episodes and you will find that link to get your hands on some vampiric lore and some vampiric maps. Brett, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I've been a fan for a while and and now I'm here, so <laughs> it's, it's cool to be. A, it's cool to contribute to your podcast, and I I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And check us out next time here on Occult Confessions.